Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest on this episode is Andy Cagnetta. Andy is the CEO of Transworld Business Advisors, one of the largest business brokers in the country. The typical guest on Think Like an Owner is an owner-operator, often running a business they acquired, although not always, and therefore the buyer's side of a transaction is where we have spent the most time as a podcast. I wanted to hear the other side and learn more about a broker's perspective in the small business and search world. What do they care about? What do buyers do that is counterproductive? And how can they more effectively build relationships? We go over questions like this along with what a good business broker looks like, why some listings never sell, how to impress sellers and brokers as a buyer, the perception of search funds, and how Andy himself is an acquisition entrepreneur who acquired Transworld and became CEO. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Heather Anderson from Live Oak Bank. So how long does the process of getting an SBA loan take for a searcher acquiring a company? In general, it takes at least 90 days. It could take longer if you face some delays from the from the seller throughout the process, which is very common. But if all goes well and you get things in a timely manner, it should take 90 days from the time of a signed LOI to the closing. Um, and we kind of break it down into three sections, sort of. At the time of the signed LOI, uh, the bank should be able to issue you a term sheet within about three to five days. And that's um, something that's been vetted with credit. So you know that the bank is on board with the transaction and the structure. Then after that, you move into underwriting for an additional approximately three weeks, working through a little more detail on the deal, hopefully getting your quality of earnings in at that point. So we have uh, confidence in the cash flow that we're, that we're basing the underwriting on. So all in all, the first 30 days are spent getting through credit. Then the next 60 days of the 90 days are spent getting through closing. Closing is pretty busy time. This is where you're going to be finalizing your purchase and sale agreement. Also where a lot of delays might occur. A lot of times you are also negotiating the final working capital arrangements with the seller that can also cause some delays. You'll be providing um, the final needs list, entity documents, leases, insurance, and when all and finalizing your cap stack, of course, as well. That's an important part of the closing process. When all of those things are complete, you're closing. But as you can tell, it it will uh, consume every minute of those 60 days that you'll be working on it. So, you know, best case, 90 days, very common for it to kind of drag on a little bit longer than that based on, you know, very common delays. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Heather. To learn more about Live Oak Bank's search fund lending, you'll find Lisa and Heather on Live Oak's search fund landing page and find links to resources, FAQs, podcasts, and links to office hours. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I wanted to have kind of a a discussion with the business brokerage perspective of the search fund world and folks acquiring small businesses. We hear a lot from the folks who are acquiring, but we don't hear as much from the brokerage side. And I think there's enough not known about it that it's valuable to bring that discussion to the show. So... I'm excited sure. to have you and, and talk a little bit more about that. But you acquired Transworld, as we were just talking about, which is wild to, to, to hear that this business brokerage was acquired in, in much the same way as the as many of your clients are. Can you talk a little bit about the your early life? You talked about selling guitars and doing a bunch of other side businesses and then acquiring Transworld. Can you walk us through that journey of yours? Yeah, I, you know, I graduated from college and I was looking to do something. And at the time, economy was a little tight. So I wound up selling cell phones on behalf, starting my own business. And I had done a few little startup things along the way and selling lighting, selling guitars. I wound up in the guitar industry where my family had come from in the, they manufactured guitars for a hundred years, but, and I wound up in that industry because I knew some people, but you know, selling guitars was not a very profitable thing. And I wound up buying a business in Connecticut with my family. And we bought this small little, it was called a 
pasta shop and it was a, a, a gourmet food store slash we used to do some catering, things like that. And we were young people. We were 20 something years old and we bought it, me and my cousins, and we ran it for a couple of years and we wound up selling it. And just because everybody had had enough of the food business and they were moving on to different things in their lives. And the process of buying and selling a business was a lot easier than doing a startup. So when my I had met my wife and she had grown up in South Florida, so we decided to move to South Florida. And in the process, I said, well, let me go out there and see what kind of businesses I could buy in South Florida. And I ran into a lot of brokers and I had never run into a broker before. I didn't know what one was, had bought and sold a business myself. And, you know, for the most part, felt like I was in a used car sales room with a lot of these brokers. And until I ran into Transworld and Transworld was run by a 30 year IBM executive and his wife. They're just both very, very nice people. And we wound up talking a lot and they liked me and they invited me to join the firm. I was 30 years old at the time. And I joined the company and I did well in my first couple of years. I sold a bunch of businesses about nine in my first nine months. And, and I was like, wow, this is a great business. You could sell like one thing a month and, and make a lot of money. I kind of like this. And I enjoyed the variety of it all, you know, just different businesses. And I enjoyed talking to entrepreneurs and helping them realize their dreams of either selling or buying. And so two years into my stint, Don and Bonnie decided to retire. His full retirement kicked in at IBM. And so I bought the company. And we had one office at the time. We had about 10 people working for us. And we kind of started growing the business. And we took on some capital from what is now known as New Tech. And we grew the company to 10 offices in the state of Florida. And, you know, it took us about 13 years to do that. And we said, gee, how do we take the next step? How do we go to Charlotte? How do we go to Atlanta? And I do believe that you need to be a, a local, you need to be a trusted advisor in your community to be able to be good at business brokerage. So we decided to franchise. And that's when we partnered with United Franchise Group and franchised Transworld a dozen years ago. And now we have 200 offices. So it's been a wild ride. It's a fascinating story. Can you walk through what the business of Transworld looks like? Like, what's the business model? Customers, what's your team look like? Just walk us through the business model of a business brokerage. Yeah, so in many states and here in Florida, particularly, we are set up like a real estate office. Uh, we are actually licensed and we have independent contractors like a lot of real estate brokerages do. So everybody who works here is on 100% commission. And when they close the deal, they get a portion of that commission. Except for we do have administrative staff that are doing things like marketing and bookkeeping and management and training. And we have all those facilities and we have all those things. And we provide our agents a home and we provide them with marketing tools and we provide them with advertising. We provide them with the forms and everything else. So we hire a bunch of people and they go out into the community and we advertise as well and give them leads. And we're looking, most of the time it starts on the sell, sell side. It's been a buyer's market for, out of the 27 years that I've been doing this, it's been a buyer market for 25 of those years. Perhaps after 9-11, there was a little time where people were scared to buy something and you could have gotten a really good deal. Perhaps in 2000 nine and 10 after the great recession, you could have gotten a good deal. And perhaps, you know, if you were bold enough to buy something just as the pandemic was hitting, you could have gotten a good deal. But other than that, it has been a seller's market. So we usually start with looking for sellers who want to sell. We sit down with them. We understand what their goals are. We give them an idea of what they think their business would sell for. And then we would market and package it and then eventually when we sold it, we would get paid a commission and, and the agents make commissions as well. How do you find sellers who are, uh, who are considering selling? It sounds, like a, it sounds like a type of client that needs a lot of personal relationships, hence the franchise model of finding someone locally. But how do you find someone who's contemplating that sell decision and usually doesn't tell hardly anybody about that aside from maybe their accountant or someone? Yeah, you know, you do have to be present, right? And this business is usually based on referrals. That's our number one source of new 
new clients. And that's getting to know the accountants and the attorneys and the investment advisors and the bankers and the landlords. And those are the types of people that might get an indication first that their client needs to sell. Other than that, getting to the clients directly, certainly we've done things like radio advertising, direct mail, literally door-to-door sales where we're walking around and introducing ourselves. And, you know, right through networking groups like Network Lead Exchange or BNI or other groups like that. And then what does growth look like? So you have new franchise locations, but there's a lot that goes into doing just that. So if you're going to add a couple locations, what needs to happen for those to to come about? Well, you know, we do. That's another advertising model where we go out to the world and we advertise that we want to sell franchises. And again, we sometimes use radio. We go to a lot of franchise shows. We have salespeople around the world with United Franchise Group, and they have people on the ground who are looking to buy. And then, of course, there's the online world. There's all these portals that are either finding leads on LinkedIn or they're finding leads through advertising, and they're funneling those to franchisors in you know, they pay for them. So you get paid leads and you look for people to buy franchises. Plus, of course, you get referrals. Once you're a successful franchise or people seek you out because franchisees are doing very well. And so we see uh, franchisees referring their friends and their relatives. And uh, we have a lot of families in the business. So, Yeah, no kidding. When you talk to a seller for the first time who's contemplating selling their business, what are some of the most common concerns or questions that they have that you've worked through over the last few decades working with owners? Yeah. I mean, I think it's twofold. Number one, confidentiality. This is not selling a house. We're not going to put a sign on the side of the business saying, uh, this business is for sale. That is not something you want to do. You do not want to tell anybody the business is for sale. Even employees, which it can be a sticky thing depending on who the employee is, but you're best off trying to keep it to yourself. And what we tell sellers is, is we're going to do this confidentially so that everything's confidential literally until the day of closing. You know, sometimes things could leak out and we have ways to work with that as well. But for the most part, we're, get, we're not going to tip off to vendors or suppliers or to customers or to landlords that this business might be for sale because perhaps they would lose confidence in the future of that business. Number two is their concern is how much am I going to get for this business? So the first thing we usually do, and I have financials that are literally sitting on my desk all the time because I did go and get my valuation credentials. We do sit down with business owners and we say, let's take a look at your financials. Let's look at your historical financials. Let's predict into the future what a buyer may expect to receive in compensation for owning this business, and then we can value it. And that's based on multiples of earnings usually, and usually their historicals come into play. And how has that changed over the last couple of decades in terms of valuations or process confidentiality? How how have some of those factors evolved or changed over time? Well, there's a few things that have changed. Number one, being able to find buyers uh, changed because when I got into this business, the way we used to advertise is put ads in newspapers. Uh, So to try to get the word out even beyond the local area was very, very difficult to do. Now with the internet and things like biz buy sell out there in the world, you can get the word out all kinds of places. Axial, there's lots of platforms that are advertising businesses for sale, including ours. The number two thing that's gotten better over time, I think, is trying to predict how much these businesses are going to make or prove how much these businesses are making. When I first got into this business, there might have been businesses that had a lot of cash sales or did a lot of things to make their tax burden be lowered by hiding income. And that has basically for the most part gone away. Now, I just saw a business yesterday where it happens to be a tire repair business, still has a a significant portion of cash, but that's not usual. What's happening out there in the world is there's credit cards, there's things like Venmo, and there's things like online payments, and there's things like point of sale systems. 
there's inventory systems. So for the most part, businesses have much better books and records and much more historical data to be able to predict what a buyer is going to make in the future, which makes everyone's lives a little bit easier. What would you say has gotten harder? You know, there's a few things that have gotten harder, you know, just in terms of predicting things. We just have gone through a two-year mess of a pandemic. And so if you were to ask me at the beginning of 2019 how business was going to do, I say, well, 17, 18, and 19 were just, you know, rocket ship rides. Things are going great. And then all of a sudden, we have 2020 and everybody's retracting, trying to figure out, get PPP money, try to bail themselves out. And then six months later, we're back to the races. And 2021 was a historic year for many businesses, or at least a recovering year. And 2022, we're getting through the year and people are looking much more toward exactly what a business is doing today. So I think that's hard. I mean, you know, people are trying to predict what a, a business is going to do based on all kinds of things that are going on in the world. And, and it may be getting a little bit scarier. I think uh, some of your harder things is real estate prices, right? So real estate prices have gone up and that includes commercial real estate real estate. And that's in flux because maybe office space will be more available because people are working from home. But whatever it is, you know, the value of real estate has gone up so much that it's made it somewhat untenable for businesses to be able to afford that real estate if they had to buy it today. So that that becomes more difficult for us as well to get deals done. And on the the seller expectations point that you made a little bit earlier, when a seller considers the value for their business before you've done any valuation work on what it could be worth, do you find that sellers are consistently higher or lower than what you believe the fair, fair value of their business is? You know, I, I think sellers always hope that their businesses are worth more. But, I, you know, sometimes I find that sellers are pretty realistic. Again, good news in the world. There's so much information out there in the world now where even on our own website of tworld.com, they could go on and they could figure out what their value is based on a range. Now it's a very, very wide range, uh, but there are tools out there for them to look at deals that have happened in the past. I was just on the phone with Darren Mize from uh, Gold Coast value, Valuation, GCF Valuation, and what he has is a thing called peer comps, where it has taken all the SBA loans that have been sold and has the models and has the multiples for those industries. And he's got, he's up around 14,000 transactions. This is stuff that didn't exist a decade ago. When you have a seller who thinks their business is worth much more than you believe it's worth or the market says it's worth, how do you manage expectations like that? Is that something that can be managed? Or in, in a lot of cases, is that someone who's just not ready to sell yet? Well, it, it could be someone not ready to sell, but what we found is that we're not going to be able to change their minds in one conversation. And certainly they're not going to believe us per, perhaps because they're going to think that the brokers are just trying to get a quick deal and make a commission. So what we have to do is educate them to the marketplace. And we, we can pull those data from those databases. We could show them transactions that have happened in the past and or simply put the business up for sale and either it'll get ignored if it's too high. And we have statistics that basically say businesses that are 15% and higher from their eventual sale price do not sell. Therefore, businesses that are listed too high get ignored. Businesses that are within the range of selling sell much more often and I, again, I think that's just an education thing. People have the ability to compare deals now. They could go onto portals and see all kinds of businesses for sale, and they understand what they're getting into. So no one's going to buy a ridiculously priced business. And so once it starts getting into that range, it could be a lot more. Sellers eventually will get there. We just have to educate them to the process. They have to hear it from the buyers. They have to get offers, and we can help them do that. What are some other types of data or listings that have a really hard time selling? Well, I, I think exposure to marketplace is one. So if you know you're, you sign up with a broker that doesn't 
advertise everywhere or doesn't spend enough on advertising to get you out there, I think that's a problem. I think there are industries that are inherently harder to sell and maybe a very specialized business that is personal in nature. But, you know, we've sold dental practices. We sell psychology practices. I mean, imagine you go to your psychologist and it's someone new. And while those businesses don't sell for a higher high multiple, most people are willing to buy them because it gives them a head start. Veterinary practices are very hot to sell. Accounting practices, these are very personal things that people want to buy. One of the other hard things to sell is asset deals. So where the asset value of the business is not justifiable by the earnings. So for instance, I have a very well-known recording studio for sale in a very, very famous place for music. I won't mention where it is, but I don't want to give it away. So it's a very nice recording studio, lots of gold albums, uh, lots of platinum albums, top-notch people that have been through there, very historic. The problem is it doesn't make a lot of money. And it's a sort of a like we were selling a vineyard. Again, beautiful piece of property, uh, but the price of the property made it so hard to buy the vineyard because the vineyard really didn't make a lot of money. And as you know, some sometimes it's like sports teams; it's a vanity buy. Somebody buys it because they have lots of money and they just want something like that. So those are tough to sell, though. It's really hard, and and we do pride ourselves of being able to find the needle in the haystack. We just sold a business. If you've ever seen the human bodies exhibit in museums where you go and they have the actual human bodies that are preserved in a special way, we just sold that business and we sold it to a comp- to a museum in the panhandle of Florida that has a dinosaur museum is now going to have this human body exhibit. And who's going to buy, you know, literally, you know, 20 dead humans that have been preserved and 200 body parts, but we were able to get it done. I think that's probably one of the wildest deals I've heard. It is the wildest deal. And I took it on specifically for that reason, because I said, if we get this one done, we can sell just about anything. Yeah. What other businesses fall into that unique or vanity play type businesses? You know, I said the sports teams like that. Sometimes the boating businesses we see out there where people are being a charter boat. Again, the boat is very expensive, very tough to, to sell. We did sell the Maikai, which is a very famous restaurant, tiki restaurant. And I did not know this uh, before we got into this, but the tiki culture is a big thing. They have they have annual retreats and meetings uh, for the tiki culture. And the Maikai, which is based here in Fort Lauderdale, is a very famous place. We put it up for sale and we got response from all over the world. Now, they didn't care if it was confidential or not. They really wanted to save the brand. And we found someone who wanted to save the brand. We have a hamburger, 50-year-old hamburger company for sale in uh, another part of the United States. And it's hard to find uh, someone who wants to buy it. Again, the real estate is worth a lot of money. The business is the original owner has passed away and the business has not been run optimally. And so therefore the earnings do not justify the purchase price that you would need to buy the physical plant of these three locations. What percent of listings never sell? You know, we've tracked that a lot over the years. Historically, business brokers, they say only one in five businesses that come to the market actually sell. I think it's a lot higher than, I I think it's a lot lower than that. I think it's somewhere around 50%. I think eventually about 70% of them sell. It's just that that broker doesn't sell it. And so I think most things will eventually sell if they get to the right price. Yeah, you mentioned depending on the broker, what would you say from... Also, from a broker's perspective, but also a buyer's perspective, how do you identify a good broker? You know, I think a good broker is a good project manager. They're not necessarily a great salesperson. I think people who come to buy or sell a business have in their mind that that's what their ultimate goal is, right? They just need to be guided through the process. 
And it's a jungle. I mean, it's it's just a lot of things could go wrong through the process. So you need someone that has the experience of going through that process. I don't think you need someone that is experienced in selling a psychology practice. Sure, that helps, but the process of going through and selling a business is, you know, something that we do over and over again and dealing with the landlords, dealing with the SBA lenders, dealing with the buyer, dealing with the seller, dealing with the accountants and due diligence. Those are the important things of knowing what's customary in a business. So when a seller says, hey, I want the buyer to put up their house and I want all their kids to sign personally, you know, that's the stuff that's, you know, outside the bounds. We have to look at them, say, no, 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 you know, check your reality. That's not going to happen. So those are the kind of things that we have to kind of go through. So you're a great business broker is someone that has a calm demeanor, is someone that can rationally think through and is a good problem solver. One thing I know we talked about earlier was there's often a disconnect, especially with broker, like sub-average brokers with buyers where they just either don't get along or there's just some mismatch or miscommunications back and forth. We A lot of our guests on this podcast have been on the buyer side, but I would love to hear what are some of those common miscommunications or things that buyers just don't understand from the broker perspective that you think are are most common in any sort of conflict or disagreement or miscommunication within that process? Yeah, I think the hardest thing for buyers is it's the tougher side of the deal right now, right? So a lot of buyers are frustrated because the brokers don't answer the phone. And I feel for them. I, I understand that. I have family members that have bought businesses in the past. And my advice to them is that it is a full-time job to go out there and buy a business. And one of the things you do is you have to prove to the business broker that's going to spend time with you that you are serious about buying a business and that you were loyal to them. Because what brokers have experienced in the past is, you know, someone calls on their business, right? So they'll call and they pick up the phone and they, and they show them their business. They said, ah, I don't like that one. Show me more. Well, this is where the broker is taking a big risk, right? So are they going to spend the time, try going to chase down other brokers and try to cut a deal to make sure that they're going to get paid? Now here in Florida, we have a standing deal where we co-broke all the time, but that's not true everywhere, which is a frustration of mine. We could talk about it in a few minutes. And, but are they going to go and chase other deals for that buyer? Because sometimes the buyer calls back and says, after they've done six months of work with them, it calls back and says, yeah, never mind. I found something or I got a job and I'm, I'm just done. So most of the time, what the brokers are going to do is they're going to sit back and they're going to sit with their sellers, their files, and they're going to work their files because what's going to happen, and that's this is bad news for buyers too. We just put out a deal yesterday and it got 100 responses. And there's already 30 NDAs out on this. And it's possible that we'll get half a dozen offers on this one business. And so when a buyer calls me up and says, well, I want something that's niche. I want something that has recurring revenue. I want something that somebody's retiring. I want something that's growing. I want something that has low employees. I want something that's nine to five. And I look at them and say, if I find that business, I'm going to buy it. There's no perfect business out there. You're going to have to work hard. And so I tell my own family members, I'm like, listen, all I ask is go out there in the world. Go on BizBuySell, go on TWorld.com, go on all the websites, copy down the ad number, send it to me. I'll call the other broker and I'll try to chase it down for you. Let me be your representative and I'll look for deals. And I'll be honest with you. Hey, listen, I'm not sure I, I like that pack and ship store. Hasn't made a lot of money over the years. I'm not quite sure how you're going to grow your pack and ship store. By the way, pack and ship is doing great these days with the internet these days. But it used to be a tough business to buy. It didn't make a lot of money, tough to grow. So I would say, you know, maybe you're more talented at doing something. It's the way I feel about gas stations right now. How much extra business could you bring to a gas station? You're going to start dragging cars off the street. It, you know, for the most part, gas stations, you're going to want to buy multiples of them because they make what they make. And so, you know, I, I try to encourage people to try to go out there and get educated. 
because what's going to happen is there's so there's a low inventory right now and they're going to go out there in the world look at all the inventory and say come back to me and say Andy I don't see any good deals and I could agree with them I'm like there's not that one business that's perfect for someone who wants to build a team build a uh, build a brand go out there but what happens is that business will come up for sale and they're going to be one of the 100 people that respond and they're going to have to stand out. And how are they going to stand out? They're going to take a meeting as quickly as possible. They're going to get in front of the seller. They're going to be organized and tell that seller why they're going to make their baby a much better place and save their baby and make sure their baby lives on for a long time because these sales are the seller's babies. And they're going to put in a good offer at a good price and they're going to be ready to rock with their cash in place or their banks in place. And they're going to be ready to buy because that's what it takes. Yeah, there's a, a few factors there of businesses with recurring revenue that have you know, low employee counts, which sound a lot like the filters that a lot of search funds use and independent sponsors use to sure. acquire businesses. What's the broad perspective of search funds, independent sponsors, individual buyers from brokers? What, how do they view those buyers? Well, I mean, so the, you know, people who are pledge funds, quote unquote, that people will give them money if they find a good deal. Those are tough. I mean, you know, we, we look at them a little bit with scrutiny because, you know, there are sometimes better buyers out there, the strategic buyers that have a balance sheet that are ready to deploy it if they find a good deal or sometimes the easier and more lucrative way for a seller to sell. So the independent sponsors. Now the independent sponsors can be a good deal. We had uh, these two kids, I'll call them kids, they were out of college, and they wound up buying a painting contractor that was earning about a million and a half dollars. Now, no private equity group wanted to look at a painting contractor. You know, this is boots on the ground, getting crews out there to paint buildings and doing estimates for customers and dealing with all the things that happen in a painting contractor's life. But it made a million and a half dollars. And these two kids, one, they either both went to Harvard or one went to Harvard. So they were real kind of business school kind of geeks that were putting everything in a spreadsheet. And they came out, they wound up buying this thing for about three times earnings, which is a low multiple. That was a very good cash flowing business. And they went out there and leveraged themselves and found it, found the money. So for us, you know, we had a business that perhaps wasn't sellable to a strategic, perhaps wasn't sellable to an individual broker because it's outside an individual broker's kind of scope to spend, you know, almost $5 million on a painting contractor. But these two kids saw something and said, wow, this is a way for us, you know, to make our mark and make money. So I'm never going to turn away a buyer. We just want to know that they're for real. So I, I will give some buyers some advice. I mean, number one, you have to have a realistic LinkedIn profile. If I go looking for you on LinkedIn and you're not there, that's red flag number one. And then my second question to you is if you don't appear anywhere on social media, I can't find you in graduate for school. I can't find you in any charity events. I can't find you in anywhere who are your partners with or who's your attorney or who's your accountant. And if they tell us who their, who their accountants are and who their bankers are and who their attorneys are, and none of those people are online, then we got a problem. <laughs> so, so you really have to kind of build out your team too and have a real team as an independent sponsor. And if you can have, hey, you know, I have, you know, my college buddies at Greenberg Traurig and he's going to be on the team and I have someone at, you know, Ernst & Young is uh, on our team as well. And I have a local CPA practice that's going to be are doing our due diligence. And I have these two bankers uh, that I have a letter from saying that, you know, we're behind them on their first transactions. You know, if it's your first transaction, you're going to have to do stuff like that. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that speed and promptness offering a good price and getting a meeting with a buyer or the seller as quickly as possible was a way to distinguish yourself as a buyer. But once you get in front of them, what are some ways that you've seen buyers distinguish themselves and make themselves a better buyer for someone's business? Well, I think, you know, the seller wants to know what's going to happen to their business. 
And we did recently have a, a fairly large transaction where the seller knew that the buyer was a strategic buyer and the whole business was just going to go away. <laughs> they just knew that that's what they were eventually going to do. And the buyers were like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And day two, after uh, they bought it, they just closed the whole thing and absorbed it into their current facilities. So if you're an independent buyer and, and you want to go in there, you know, show that the sellers that you're sincere about taking that business and, and preserving the legacy and preserving the, the employees, because a lot of times that's what they want to see. And they want to see that you have a plan and they want to see that you have resources and they want to see that you're excited and you want to show up and look for real. I mean, I've had some people show up for for some of these meetings and they're in flip-flops and their golf t-shirt and they they just look like they're a mess or they just came off the golf course. And I've had some billionaires show up looking like that, but, and so they're billionaires, they could get, get away with it. But if you're just a regular person and, and you're a young person, you know, you got to show up and, and look and have a plan and let the sellers do a lot of talking. I mean, they want their stories to be heard. And I always tell buyers for six months, you buy that business, I don't want you to do anything rash. Just sit there for six months. Just operate the business like the seller was operating the business. And then you could start tweaking it. But coming in there day two and tweaking a lot of things is usually a recipe for disaster. And the sellers don't want to hear that. The sellers don't want to hear that you're going to fire employees. They don't want to hear that you're going to move the facility because a lot of times they're on the hook. Most businesses have some sort of seller note earn out something where the seller's on the hook and they want to make sure that the buyer's going to do the right thing. Yeah. What are some other ways that you've seen buyers derail buying our acquisition processes? Well, they don't tell the truth. One of the things we, and you know, simple things like, have you been arrested before? And if you have been, you know, just tell us the story. I mean, there are stories out there where kids are 19 years old and they're at and they're down at Mardi Gras, and this one guy literally went to punch a horse, and it happened to be a police officer's horse. And, you know, that's called assault on a police officer. And he literally had a felony in his background. But he told about it, told us about it up front. And he said, listen, if they do any research on me, they're going to see this story. You know, this is the story. I, that's okay. You know, not telling things like bankruptcies, not telling us things uh, bad things that have happened is, is a recipe for disaster. You know, and I think the other thing buyers can do is try to focus on one deal. Don't try to buy three businesses at the same time or decide, I'm going to put three businesses under contract, do three, run three mutual due diligences, and then make a choice. That's another recipe for kind of for disaster. So I would just tell buyers to be truthful upfront. If they don't have the knowledge to buy the business, tell the seller that and tell the seller how important they are going to be to them afterwards. I will tell you that when we leave a buyer meeting with a seller and that buyer makes a good impression, I will get a phone call or the seller will run out in the parking lot after me and say, that's my person. I want that person to buy this business. I will do anything to make that happen. I'll give more seller financing. I'll lower the price. I'll do an earnout. That's the person I want running this business. And so that's what could happen if you make a good impression as a buyer. How much influence does a broker have over who the buyer ends up choosing or the, who the seller ends up choosing as their buyer, or at least choosing to go down the process with a certain buyer? I think a lot. I mean, you know, I we've certainly been in competitive uh, bidding situations before where we have to sit down with the seller. And so we have to come up with a spreadsheet, perhaps, of what the proceeds will look like post, you know, post-closing. So money is number one, you know, perhaps comes in. But no, a lot of times money is not number one. Number one is the buyer is going to close. So you go back to, you know, someone who's a pledge fund or someone who's and a sponsored buyer. And, you know, if they don't have access to that capital and they're going to have to go through a lot of machinations to try to get it done, oftentimes sellers will take a deal that's cash 
that will close much quicker if the you know if they're ready if if it's going to close faster or if it's a more known quantity is going to close the deal so i think that's you know when we try to guide our sellers we're telling the sellers listen number one who's going to close number two is who's going to get through the process of closing and perhaps number three is the eventual purchase price how impactful is a buyer's previous closes on other businesses so if you have two buyers you're looking at one's never closed before never bought anything but one has bought maybe two or three businesses maybe even in the same industry how much more weight do you give that experienced buyer versus the new buyer i mean i think a lot you know i a point to the maikai restaurant uh, before the person who bought the maikai brought back an old hundred year restaurant in miami in Kyocho. He had bought several other properties in Kyocho, brought them back, brought a, you know, brought back a taco business and now is expanding that, brought back a breakfast concept that he's now expanding. He has dozens of locations. So when we presented that buyer comparative to another buyer uh, that was local who had, you know, plans to knock down the building, you know, and again, all the sellers wanted was that legacy to continue. Then, you know, this guy was like, no, 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 I'm all about the history. I'm all about the old pictures. They were actually cleaning out the place. And he says, please don't take anything out. The old pictures, the plaques on the wall, the dollars taped to the wall. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that he wanted. And that resonated with the sellers. So, I, you know, I think it's very important to show that the buyer has a track record. And if you're a buyer for the first time and you have not acquired a business before and you're going up against a lot of experienced buyers in that you know that type of deal you talked about where there's a hundred people reaching out how does someone stand out maybe they can't stand out in the first deal but over six months or a year of getting to know this potential buyer are there ways for that potential buyer to distinguish themselves in a broker's mind so that when that hundred deal that hundred you know inquiry deal comes up again they're a little bit higher up on the list. You know, I laugh, but I say, you know, bring your spouse, bring your dad, bring your mom, bring your, bring your family to the meeting, bring a business partner, an advisor. You know, I think I had a very young advisor once upon a time, and he's, he's a very successful advisor, but he's 20 something years old. And I was, you know, again, I had just turned 30 years old. And, you know, to walk up to a 65 year old and say, trust me, is a tough thing. But what, you know, I was able to do and what, you know, a lot of, I've seen what happens when a, a, a seller will pick an inexperienced buyer is because they have a young family. They're willing to work harder. They're going, they're going to put the time in and spend time at this business. Not like a 60 year old guy who's bought 15 of these things. And he's just going to try to put a manager in and let the business run. You know, a lot of business owners want that buyer to work their business. And so if you're a young person or someone that has never bought a business, just look at them and say, I'm going to put more work in. I'm going to be interested in what you have to say. I'm going to help, you know, continue your vision. And a lot of times that resonates with the sellers. And on the seller side, what are some helpful things that sellers can do to prepare themselves and their business for being sold. This is why I write books. I literally wrote a book about selling a business. And the reason I want people to prepare, right? Just, you just got to think about it. And the number one thing you could do is just keep good books and records. I mean, if you just stop brutalizing your business to save on taxes and realize that you just have a partner in business and it's called the federal government, and have good books and records, have an inventory system that actually works, have uh, processes and policies in place, go out and read the e-myth and understand how your business actually operates and document it. Those things will make your business much more sellable. And if you grow your business before you sell, instead of running it down, no one likes to buy a business that's running down. The SBA actually will not lend money based on that. So your business needs to be steady or on its way up. And if you just went through the pandemic and you had a rough 2020 
and you're recovering in 2021 and 2022 looks like it's going to be as good or better than 2019, and you're 70 something years old or 60 something years old, it is time to seriously think about selling your business. What do you recommend sellers do after selling their business? Assuming they're not working in the business anymore or they've already done their three to six months anymore. Of course, you know, they, everybody wants to take that time off and then usually people get bored. You know, I just tell sellers, I mean, you know, number one, I, you know, selfishly, I would tell them, think about joining trans world. Love to have you, you know, business owners who have sold their businesses turn out to be great intermediaries. You know, I also encourage people to get involved in their community. The nonprofit world needs good people. It needs people that don't necessarily work because they need money. They work because they need fulfillment in life. And I, I forget what the name of the book is, but it talks about your the second half of your life. And th- that's what it's about. It's, a, it's about leaving a legacy. So if you haven't left a legacy in your business, maybe it's time to leave a legacy in your community. You've talked a lot about trying to establish good relationships in various regions and cities. And that's part of the franchise model is having someone local and a big part of building relationships in a city or location is, you know, giving back to that community in various ways. What are some ways that you've effectively built relationships in different cities and regions through either charity or giving back in some way? What does that look like? Yeah, I I think it is getting involved in your community. I happen to one of my earlier involvements at the chamber, trying to get involved in the local community was on a leads group. So I thought networking was the thing to do at the chamber. And I wound up getting involved with a charity locally that is a soup kitchen, emergency food pantry, and they had a broken air conditioner. I helped them fix it through some of the businesses that I had sold. And they invited me on the board and I eventually became the chairman of the board. And we built a, a building, a $2 million facility to help uh, feed people and clothe people and do social services. And I said to everybody on the board at that time, I said, hey, listen, everybody needs to raise money. I don't care how you're gonna do it, go out and raise money. So I said, because of my pasta shop experience that I talked about earlier, I decided to cook dinner for everybody at the facility and have a Sunday dinner. And so I did that and four years into it, we were just jamming, we were sold out, couldn't fit any more people inside of that facility. So we moved it to the local catering hall. And now 20 years later, we just celebrated our 20th year. We raised $365,000 this year. We had uh, 900 people present at the uh, Andy's Family Pasta Dinner. It's been a great run. And and, And I didn't do it just to build my business, but that has absolutely, it has absolutely helped my business. I, I, I just believe if you're going to be part of the economy, part of that economy is giving back and supporting those who are less fortunate. And so it has been incredible. Because of that, I've also been invited to be on other charitable boards. And I've been invited to be on the 100 CEOs of Broward County called the Broward Workshop. And I just rolled off being the, the chairman of the local United Way, United Way. And I've traveled the world with both Junior Achievement and the United Way doing things for them. Uh, so it's just brought us so many opportunities and it's just a, a great way to go out there. And, and it helps build yourself. I mean, going through strategic planning meetings and going through board trainings, all those things teach you how to be a better business owner. Yeah, I definitely agree. Moving to some closing questions. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? I I, I do teach a little bit and I teach about negotiations. I love that. I love the book Chris Voss wrote for uh, Never Split the Difference. Uh, So uh, negotiations. How do you structure that class? Do you teach that or is that something you wish you could teach? No, I do teach it. I do teach it. And I, I usually just talk about negotiations for it's about an hour, an hour and a half. I teach it to nonprofit executives. I just got done doing that. Uh, we talk about getting the big check at a nonprofit. Uh, so I do that every year. That's fantastic. Uh, what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? I mean, I just, I don't know whether to make it funny. Like, it's, you know, my one strongly held belief was I didn't like Broadway musicals and my daughter loves Broadway musicals. She's trying to make her way up in New York right now. 
And uh, she brought me or I got dragged to go see Wicked when she was a little girl. And I was like, wow, wait a second. This stuff is really good. So I love Broadway. I actually wrote a play, a musical with her. And uh, it's been kind of a family project over the last five years. So she has definitely changed my mind about musical theater. What's the best business you've ever seen? There's there's two that come to mind. One, but I, and I'll let you pick from when I'm done with that. So one of the best businesses I ever saw was a, a distribution business in Miami uh, that distributed nothing but wheels. It was a caster uh, distribution business, and I was fascinated by it because it was in a small little warehouse, been around for 20 years. Uh, the owner had three staff members. Uh, he used to come in like two hours a week. And he, he used to have a golden goose on his license plate. And it was like his little model. He had like things embroidered with a little golden goose on it because this business kept laying golden eggs for him. And it would make money year after year after year. Very low maintenance business. Very, you know, had three employees that basically took care of it had long-term clients like hotels and cruise ships and, 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 di- and distribution companies that needed wheels, that replacement wheels on, on things like, you know, uh, ro- dollies and all kinds of things. And it was, it was fascinating business. And I was like, wow, so simple. Little warehouse that you would never pick out as that's a business that's making that, uh, you know, somebody half a million to almost a million dollars a year, year after year after year. So that was one of the best businesses I've ever seen. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Andy, for coming on the podcast and talking about the the business brokerage side of of buying and selling businesses. It's been great to have you and chat a little bit about it. Thank you. No problem. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. Mm-hmm.